Thanks for joining us on our U.S. Soccer President Candidate Forum Series. I'm Justin Brunken with the American Outlaws, and our goal is to help foster positive change for the Federation and U.S. Soccer by giving the candidates a platform to talk to and listen to our members, the fans. These forums are only possible because of our members' support. So feel free to become a member yourself, if you aren't already, at theamericanoutlaws.com. Visit our election page at voao.theamericanoutlaws.com forward slash ao dash election dash center. Yeah, I know it is a tad long, but it's where you can uh, see candidate questionnaires and the schedule for all the rest of the live forums. We'll see you at the next game in the stands. Listen and see if they address your issues and thoughts. Thanks and enjoy. Um, so it's really important that 
that you reached out to all of us. It's really important that we take the time and we speak to the American Outlaws and that we, we speak to the fan base. So thank you um, individually, but also thank you everybody for continuing to push the game forward with, with your passion. We absolutely need your voice. And hopefully in time, you, you will not only have a voice in the game, but you'll also have a vote. That's personally what I would like to see. Um, I know that we have many issues that we have to address, and there's a lot of, a lot of divisiveness right now within U.S. soccer, within youth soccer, even within the adult, the adult game. There's a lot of issues that we're all facing, and I've had many calls um, with many of the, the different states and, and the different voting members. Um, I've been inspired by a lot of the calls, but I've also been heartbroken. I've been heartbroken because we're so fractured, and you know, we're competing in many different ways and not for, we're not coming together to help the game improve. We're not coming together to help develop the, the youth and we're not coming together to create a winning system. So it, it, it's been heartbreaking, but at the same time, I know that this game is here to stay here in America. And I think it's here to stay because of all of you and because of your your passion. So I want to thank you for that. Um, I also do believe that it's the, I hope you, t you don't take offense to this, but I, I do believe that it's a fan's job is, is to lift their team. And I cannot tell you how many times I've been lifted by the American Outlaws, and I've been lifted in games where it has mattered the most, in World Cups, at Wembley for the gold medal match in 2012. I would not be standing here with the Golden Gloves, with World Cup victories, or with gold medals without you having our back. So I want to thank all of you for that. That's great. Thank you, Hope. Um, for those of you that don't know, um, Hope's campaign is based on four um, principles, I guess you could say. Number one, knowing how to win and creating a winning culture. Number two, equality and women's issues. Number three, youth and diversity at all levels. Number four, USSF, organizational, operational, and financial governance transparency. Hope, do you want to kind of outline or, or let us know how you got these four initiatives? Yeah, I mean, as you know, I've, I've been a member of the team. Um, I've, I've been an employee of U.S. soccer for close to 20 years. I was just a young girl um, when I first got involved, and I believed anything was possible. I, I didn't really recognize the difference between the men and the women. Um, I knew that we were some of the top players in the world, for sure, in our country, and I expected the treatment to be equal. Um, I was naive. I, I was naive. And for the better part of, you know, probably close to 17, 17 years, I, I fought these battles day in and day out. I fought for better treatment. I fought for better doctors, better trainers, better fields. I didn't understand why we constantly got told that we could not be paid the same as the men. It, it was over my head. And, you know, I was just a young girl, and I did not understand that these things, that the world was, was so unfair. And, you know, as I grew up in the system, um, as I helped negotiate five different CBAs, I realized that these injustices must be fought. And I continued to fight them day in and day out. And ultimately, and I hope we can touch upon this at some point, ultimately, in the end, despite what everybody's heard in, in the public and in the media, it's because of how much I fought all of these injustices is what ended up getting me fired. And I can tell that story at another time. Um, hopefully we can get to that later. But it's because I found out 
where some of this money from Soccer United Marketing was going prior to the Summer Olympics in 2016. And I had the emails um, that show that I, 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 I was asking U.S. Soccer questions that they did not want to answer. And in so many words, I said, you know what, Hope, just stick to playing soccer. This is above your pay grade. And so for 20 years, I fought many of these issues. And, you know, this last year and a half, I traveled the world. I met with different player associations in Italy and Portugal. Um, I met with some of the Brazilian players. I, I learned about how, what other federations have been doing. I also have done many leadership talks. I've been on stage with the United Nations, with leaders in their individual fields. I've been on stage with different presidents. I've, you know, worked with Nobel Peace Prize winners. And I realized I cannot just walk away from the game and quit fighting for what I've been fighting for for 20 years because the fight is not over. So this last year and a half has really prepared me for this moment and made me realize that the fight's not over and I have to do whatever it takes to continue to push these issues forward. I'll let you dive right into it, Hope. Um, you, you mentioned that there were some questions that weren't answered. Um, do you mind elaborating on, on that? What are you referencing? Well, I just mean with the with the questions from Stockton United Marketing. You know, there's a lot of people that that uh, it's been surrounded with some controversy lately. So I'm I'm curious yeah, what your thoughts are on it. And, and, I, and um, I, sorry, go ahead. In our last um, attempt to negotiate the the new CBA, um, we actually had United States senators submit written requests for full financial disclosures from both the, the Federation as well as Soccer United Marketing. And they decided they, they didn't want to disclose that information. And keep in mind, one of the candidates, Kathy Carter, who I know is, is well-versed in business, um, but keep in mind, she was the president at the time when these senators made these written requests, as well as the U.S. Women's National Team Players Association. We made these requests because we wanted to fully disclose the amount of money that some provides the Federation. We wanted to know the sponsorship fees, the licensing fees, the television rights fees, all of the revenues. And now we have this candidate saying she believes in complete transparency. But where was she when she was the president of Stark United Marketing, and we asked for full financial disclosures? They did not give them to us. So... There, there's a lot of there's a lot of issues that are going on within U.S. soccer. There's a lot of conflict of interest. I know you hear that time and time and time again. But if you actually read the conflict of interest policy, I think you would all be surprised because in the second paragraph, it basically says that none of the board members can can be of can be in any conflict of interest. So if you're a board member, it basically recluses you from being responsible of having any conflicts. And their conflict of interest policy is not even in line with the 21st century. So it, there's a lot of problems and issues uh, facing the Federation right now. The conflicts of interest between Soccer United Marketing and U.S. Soccer and the executive officers and the members of the respective boards of directors, it's, it's quite clear and it's, it's really troubling right now. Yeah, so how would, if you were elected as U.S. Soccer president, how would you increase the transparency? You know, I, 
I think it's pretty easy. I mean, it's a nonprofit organization, and there's no reason why every transaction shouldn't be public knowledge. There's no reason why the men and the women shouldn't get equal equal pay from talking to the marketing, um, equal revenues from the television contracts. There's no reason for this. And what's happening right now is the general public is getting confused because U.S. soccer has done a great job of convoluting everything, confusing people. I mean, they are literally not abiding by federal law and the Equal Equal Pay Act that was passed in 1962 or three. And they're literally not abiding by the law, but they're still confusing the general public by saying, well, the women chose their contracts to be organized a specific way and the men chose their contracts. But it's convoluted the whole process. And in reality, all we need to do is make sure that every transaction is public knowledge. It's a, you know, it's a nonprofit organization and we need transparency. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. So how do you think that with NWSL, do you think the USSF, um, their support has been adequate or how would that look under your leadership if you were to become president? Uh, did you say the NWSF? Yes. Uh, well, there's a lot of changes I would like to make with the, with the NWSL. Um, there's a lot of changes I would like to make, making sure that the Federation has more equality. Um, you know, I touched a, a little bit on it, but I do want to make sure that the men and, and women will operate under the same CBA, um, same pay structure, same bonus money, same marketing from possibly different marketing companies other than Soccer United Marketing. Um, I want the same amount of TV exposure and TV revenue. Um, I will force U.S. Soccer to abide by federal law and immediately pay the women the years of back pay that they're owed. Um, I want to make sure that you know, there's uh, equal men and women on the board as well as in executive positions. Um, but there's some other issues that people aren't aware of. I mean, right now in the current CBA, not all U.S. women's national team players are allowed to play overseas. That completely handcuffs these players to play in the NWSL. And I'm an advocate of the NWSL. I want to support our domestic league. However, we cannot force players to stay domestically if they make more money overseas, if they want to just get the experience of playing in Europe. That's their individual right and their individual individual decision to make. And there is no law and no rule in place that does not allow the men, the MLS players, to go overseas to play. So a lot of people don't even know that that rule exists. We are forcing our U.S. women's national team players to stay domestic and play in the NWSL and in essence, we are making them make less money than they would potentially uh, if they chose to play overseas. Um, also with the NWSL, I would want full rostered players to have livable, livable wages. Um, right now, I mean, in my opinion, I think a, a Stanford grad would be half crazy <laughs> to play in the NWSL for only 15000 a year. And that was increased from last year from 2016 when that salary was $7,500 per year. How do you call it a professional league when these players can't even make a living? I had this, um, this argument with Sunil quite some time ago before the NWSL even came out, and I said these players have to make livable wages. Otherwise, 
we are a semi-professional league. So, you know, th there's a lot of things I would do uh, for the NWSL. I, I would make sure that they have a minimum salary that is that is based off of livable wages. I would make sure that the MLS as well as the NWSL have equal voting rights. Um, and then the WPSL, one of the biggest women's leagues in the world, similar to the NASL, will also have voting rights. Um, so I think there's a lot of things that we need to address with the NWSL. I think, I think the NWSL is, is here to stay and we need to attract more investors. Um, and to be quite honest, I think we need to attract investors with deeper pockets. Sticking with U.S. Soccer, uh, the Federation, um, the choice of venues for both men's and women's games lately has been a little bit under scrutiny. I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts were um, about U.S. Soccer's choice for certain venues for certain games. Um, and if you were to become president, what do you think would be your outline for selecting uh, venues and game, game locations? You know, as, as a player, and, and I think I have a – unique outlook, um, you know, being a player for so long for the Federation, uh, like I said, being a part of so many different CBA negotiations, understanding, you know, how how they work and what's important to them, you know, sitting across the table with Dan Flynn and Sunil Galati time and time and time again, um, asking all of these questions, like why we're playing in these particular stadiums that uh, some of them were, were deemed uh, unsafe for fans and players alike. Um, and we never, you know, we never got solidified answers. Uh, we were told it was, it was based off of the NFL scheduling or, uh, we never felt like we were told the truth. Um, in hindsight, we were pretty sure that a lot of these deals that they were making with the certain stadiums were, were back pocketed deals. Um, they had relationships with certain owners. Um, but, and Soccer United Marketing had a huge say as well. So the priority for me would be to use stadiums with suitable grass fields. Um, you know, if that were the case, however, we wouldn't be able to play in places like my hometown of Seattle, for instance, because it's turf. So I think we need to make sure that we, we put in the money and put in the effort to, to lay grass fields, um, oftentimes like they do for when – international clubs come over to the United States to play. Um, it's something that, that should be expected. Um, I don't want to see soccer be played on any more turf fields, to be quite honest. Um, I do think that most soccer players would say that, uh, most purists. Um, I know that as American soccer players, we get used to playing on turf, but it's not safe, and it does change the game. And I would think as fans as well that you guys would want to smell the dew of the field and see more sliding tackles and it's almost more intensity when you see it on the grass and and yeah it's i think it's a soccer purist thing but i don't want to cut out those cities i don't want to discriminate uh, against any city across the united states any state across the united states we talk about making the game accessible to more people and you know the mission statement for us soccer is to to make soccer the preeminent sport in the united states well, how do we do that if we're not making the game accessible to all people? So we need to play in many different cities. We can't discriminate versus cities and states. Um, the stadiums obviously have to be safe. And 
I, I think it has to be, these decisions have to be made by soccer-minded and passionate, passionate people. But right now, these are not the people making these decisions. And we're excluding so many Americans from actually having an opportunity to experience a, a live game. Okay, first question um, coming from Rebecca in, in American Outlaws, Carson City. Uh, Hope, 2013 in Lake Tahoe, Nevada, um, you did a, a Q&A with local players. This was a dream come true and was a major part of the team soccer career. Is this something that you think you'd like to influence more players to do? Uh, I like to treat each individual player as an individual. Um, many of us have different interests. Um, we come from different walks of life. Um, I enjoy getting out into the community and meeting people for the first time. I think um, oftentimes, you know, the media tells a story about me, and that's really unfortunate because I connect with my fans, I connect with the community, I, con I connect with the youth players. And I think when people meet me firsthand or they speak to me one-on-one, -on -one, they see my passion, they see my commitment to the game, and oftentimes their opinion changes, and that's because, um, you know, the American media oftentimes just wants to sell newspapers. So I really enjoy getting out there in front of people. I enjoy speaking about leadership, speaking about gender equality. And I do this not just domestically, but at a global level. Um, but that's, those are my interests. Um, and I can't expect everybody to have the same interest. And obviously not everybody has the same leadership skills. Um, you know, and that, that goes back to, I guess, a little bit of what has, disappointed me sometimes within the team aspect of the game. And that has to do with social media. Social media has changed all sports dramatically. It's changed um, the aspect of what's the team. Um, oftentimes now you have players wanting, wanting to get noticed more, wanting to get more endorsements, especially on the women's side where we're fighting for endorsements because we need those endorsements to get paid similar to what a, a male athlete gets paid. And those are some of the struggles and issues that female athletes deal with. So social media to us now is used as, as kind of a, a way to publicize ourselves. And it's turned team sports into a really uh, potentially a very selfish game. And I know that <laughs> I would recommend for every head coach to no longer allow social media too close to a game, too close to a venue, during practice, during team meals. I've seen it ruin teams, and I've seen it ruin team sports. Okay. Um, George from D.C. asks, the women's game has grown considerably in the United States, but recently the perception is that the rest of the world is catching up in terms of development and professional uh, opportunities for women. How will you continue to keep the United States ahead of the pack in these areas? Well, like I said, U.S. soccer's mission statement is to be the preeminent sport, for soccer to be the preeminent sport in the United States. And I think that's, that's a very narrow vision. Um, should I become president, I want U.S. soccer to be the worldwide leading organization in every category, and that includes equal pay for women, of course. Right now, what's happened, U.S. soccer has the ability to be the worldwide leading organization. I looked up to U.S. soccer for so long. 
I love them as an organization, and they continue to let me down as well as other players down as well. And I think every candidate can speak and attest to that. Something needs to change. What has recently happened is Norway became the first country to pay their men and women equally, followed by Iceland. So U.S. soccer now could maybe be third if they choose to be, but they no longer can have that, that chance to be the worldwide leading organization in that realm. And that saddens me because we have the ability to do so. Um, so it, there's a lot we need to do. Yes, I 100% I agree that the rest of the world is catching up. Um, and I think there's a, it, there's a lot of reasons for this. Um, uh, I think it starts, you know, it does start with we have a broken youth system. We have a, a, a broken coaching system, um, and all of these things have to be reevaluated. In America, we only have about 3,000 A-licensed coaches. That's absurd. That's ridiculous. In a small country like Spain, we have about 20,000 top-level coaches. So we aren't only making the game tougher for coaches and players alike, but we're not making it accessible. We want coaches to get better and better and better yet we're making the B license and the A license overly expensive. We're asking people to take time off work, essentially quitting their jobs to become better coaches. And we are not giving people access to help develop these kits. So yes, I believe the rest of the world um, or other countries are catching up at a, at a very quick pace because they have better coaching systems. They're developing their youth at a younger age. Um, and it's not, it's not a rich kid sport. It's not a pay-to-play system in the rest of the world. Um, I also think that, you know, people always, I, I, people always refer to the 1999 team. And I don't understand. I don't understand. We, uh, we have great players. We've always had a great history of players on the women's program as well as the men. Um, but we've had so much success on the women's side. And then you look at our performance in 2016, and something's off. So I think that we need to start referring to what's happening more immediately, more in the present, because it is obvious that we've been outperformed by teams like Sweden, teams like Japan, teams like Brazil, teams like Germany. So it's not hard to see, but what keeps us going is we still have better athletes, we still have more pace, and oftentimes we're stronger players. And that's not the American that's not the style of soccer that we as Americans want to continue down the road. We want a more modern game. And that is also why I believe the rest of the world is catching up. It's because they have a more modern game, but we still have better athletes. So back to what you said about the coaching, um, what changes would you make to the existing coaching development system we have in the United States right now? Uh, well, like I said, I, I would make it more easily accessible to more coaches, um, coaches, should be able to get their B licenses or A licenses at a quicker quicker speed um, with less cost and less sacrifice. Um, a lot of these coaches, you know, they're not making uh, – some coaches, some coaches don't take any pay for the entire year. Some coaches are getting paid 2000 upwards to, to 20000 a year. But you still – a lot of coaches have a side job, so we're expecting them to take one to two weeks off of work to go take an A-license course and also spend thousands of dollars to take the course. It's, uh, it, it doesn't help develop our coaches. It's, 
being absolutely exclusive. And that's why we have so few A-licensed coaches in such a big country. Um, so I would address that. Um, I would also expect more from the Federation. I would want the Federation to to go around to the state associations and help license coaches, help do, do coaching courses within each individual state. Um, you know, I, I've spoken with so many different state associations, and like I told you, it's been heartbreaking. They do everything they can for our youth. They do everything they can to to develop our youth, and they even they even coach for free at times. And you know, I've seen I've seen you know, you take the state of Alaska or Wyoming, and they don't even have fields really accessible to them because of the winter. Um, and, you know, they need to be indoors. So we could take the surplus of funds from the Federation and help these individual states. We could, there's such a surplus of funds within the Federation that each state could be subsidized to scholarship kids in, to scholarship coaches in, and to also help build better venues so that we can, we can really develop these young kids. You know, I spoke to, to one president of a, of a particular state who they have only Spanish and English speaking coaches, and that's to help bring in the Latino population. Uh, they don't pay their coaches, and they help bring, they help give rides to the kids. And one of the most, I think he's the first person who ever said something like this. He said that not only do we have to make it more diverse and we have to reach out to the underrepresented communities, but we also have to change the mindset because the mindset to a lot of these these Latino communities and these, these African communities and even these refugee communities are that if I come and play for that club or for that team, it's the white man's team. It's the white man's sport. And that is what soccer in America has become. It's become exclusive. And a lot of people think that's the rich white kid's sport. So this particular president in this particular state association, he addressed those issues. And it took him about two years to teach this Latino community that, you know what, yes, there's a lot of white kids that play, and yes, it costs a lot of money, but we want to be more diverse, and we want to be in this together because we're one community. But he had to tackle that issue, and that's a mental issue. That's a mindset that he had to tackle for, for two years, and now he has over 50% of his participants are Latino. And those are the issues that are happening in every state that nobody talks about. Nobody talks about the mindset that we have to tackle. Because if people think it's only a, a rich white kid sport, we're going to continue to lose great players. And you see that happening time, time and time again. And we just saw that happen with Jonathan Gonzalez. Again, American Outlaws members, we are here with Hope So, U.S. soccer candidate for presidency. Uh, the election is on February 10th this year, I believe. And... I just want to remind um, those of you that joined late, there is a Q&A box in the lower right-hand corner of your screen. Be sure and submit your questions. We're getting a lot of great questions coming through. Um, and if you are not a current member, check out the AmericanOutlaws.com slash member and uh, make sure you're, you re-up. And these are the kinds of things we, we are able to fund um, having great guests like Hope Solo. So I'll, I'll jump right into another question, Hope. Um, this one, let's see here. This one comes from Melanie and AO Charlotte. What as fans can we do in the next few years to improve teams in the Federation? You know, that's a tough question. Um, 
I think all of us can do more, and that's what I've learned in this last year and a half of it as I've, I've kind of met with world leaders. Um, I'm still asking myself what I can do. Um, and I think that anybody who has all the answers, I, I think they they fall victim to what I call the Sunil syndrome. And it's when you think that you have every answer to every situation. And I'll be the first candidate that, that, that will admit to not having all of the answers to everything. And I wish more candidates would, would say the same because that's exactly what we don't need. Um, we don't have time to have a, a polished politician. We, it's time for change. Um, you know, this country was built on outlaws and rebels. <laughs> and I'm proud to be speaking to the American outlaws because I am both. And I know what I'm fighting for is right. I don't have oftentimes the, the clear path, but I have assembled a great team of executives that, and world leaders that will help um, put a plan of action in place. So I really, really do appreciate this question because I know everybody wants to help more and do more. And all I can all I can really, really say is that I hope that all of you continue to use your voice because your voice is incredibly powerful. And I say it all the time, silence will not change the world. Um, you know, people people oftentimes, you know, might say that that I I'm a loud mouth, or they have they have said that about me in the past. But what I do know is that I get things done. That's why I filed in, you know, a a lawsuit against my own employer, and that was really difficult to do. Um, we filed, you know, with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission against my my own employer, and I convinced four of my other teammates to do the same. So what I know um, I'm doing is right. It's often the hard path, it's often the unpopular path, and I encourage all of you to take the hard road as well and to sometimes don't be afraid to go against the grain because right now is the time for change. And the only way we're going to get that change is to have people who who aren't afraid to use their voice, who aren't afraid to challenge the status quo, who aren't afraid to have that unpopular thought or that unpopular belief and back it up with with stats or, or science or, or support and back it up with, with action. That's the most important thing. So as much as I appreciate this question, I don't have all the answers. But what I do know is that you guys are making a difference in the game and that we can continue to benefit by you guys using your voices. So thank you for that question. I really do appreciate that. Scott from the American Outlaws Carney, where does the high school and college game play into your fans for improving youth development in this country? So I've had this conversation with many, once again, with the state associations. Um, and I believe there's a place for for U.S. club. I believe there's a place for U.S. youth soccer, ECNL, the developmental academy. There's a place for all of us. It just has to – we have to understand the pathway. And that's what's not clear to parents. It's not it, – it's what's not clear to kids, even coaches. And, and that's what's creating all this internal fighting. Some of my best growing days as a player, even though I didn't have the best coach in high school, some of my passion, my intensity, my competitiveness was established when I was, you know, 15, 16, 17 years old playing in state championships for my high school in Washington State. And I still think back to those memories very fondly. And, you know, obviously I've won Olympic gold medals and World Cup championships, and I'll never forget those 
the state championships with my high school team. There is a place for for high school soccer when it comes to developing our youth, and there is a place, of course, for, for college soccer as well. What I've seen is that we are relying more on recruiting, our recruiting skills as coaches in the college game, as well as, as with youth and club and ECNL and, and the developmental academies. We're relying on recruiting more than on our coaching skills, and that's what I want to see change because we can all benefit um, depending what, what team we choose to play for, what club, whatever system we want to play for, we can all benefit if we know the system, if we know the pathway, and if we encourage fun. You know, I, I know that seems so so juvenile, um, but oftentimes we're losing participation at a, at a really high rate right now, and it's because these kids, I mean, for every kid that makes, uh, let's say, a developmental academy, for every one kid that makes it, about 20 gets cut. That's that's insane. And Landon Donovan said it himself that if there was a DA when he played soccer, he would not have made it, and he most likely would have quit the sport. Landon was a late bloomer. So we have to allow these kids to develop on whatever path they want to develop on, and we have to allow them to develop at their own speed. And And that's what I've seen. I've seen great players develop at you know, in their in their 20s. And I've seen coaches try to pick the next Mia Hamm when this kid is only eight years old. You know what happens? They get burnt out. They fall victim to injuries. They simply don't love the game as much as maybe another player. They There's too much pressure. They can't handle the pressure. So we cannot pick these kids anymore at such a young age. We have to let them blossom and grow and develop. And in order to do so, we have to allow them to have fun. We can no longer just see kids quit at, at a rate that's, that's not allowing us to, to build sport here in America, to build soccer here in America. And we want it to be the number one sport, yet we're losing kids at a very rapid pace. Sticking with the youth, so, um, Liz from AO. Leo Austin asks, what age group should receive the most attention in terms of development, do you think? Like I said, I think uh, I think the youth develop at all different ages. Um, but what, what I've seen is that a lot of coaches have their e-license. Um, let's see. We have the, the e-license, the d-license. A, a lot of coaches at the youth have this level of license. What I'd like to see is let's say at U8, you can, you're fine with those licenses, but once you move up to U10, U11, you start to get into your, your C license. Once you go, you know, U12, U13, U14, you start to get into your B license. But I think we can develop kids better if our coaches are developing at the same rate as the kids. Because oftentimes you're going to see a coach, because they can't afford the, the coaching courses, you're going to see it oftentimes a coach, coach a U8 team, all the way up to U18 with the same coaching level, with the same license. And that is not helping develop the kids and it's not helping develop the coaches. So I don't think we need to specify what age group is most important to develop, but I do think that the kids as well as the coaches need to develop at the same rate. Otherwise, they're really not learning a whole lot more from the same coach with, with the same license from UA all the way up to U18. Again, American Outlaws, we are here with Hope Solo, U.S. Soccer Presidential Candidate, 
Um, we have only have about 20 minutes left. A lot of really great, great questions coming through, and unfortunately, we won't be able to get to all of them, but we're going to keep trying. Um, Rudy from American Outlaws, Kansas City asks, did you always envision yourself entering an administration position soccer, or is that something that you've only recently decided? I always knew that I'd be involved in pushing our sport forward, and it's what I've been accustomed to for the last 20 years. Um, I think this last year and a half, since, since my last game in 2016 in the Summer Olympics, has really shown me that we all need to do more and we can't we can't be afraid to take leadership roles um, and and we have to put ourselves out there and take risks and you know we're going to see the same people um, running for president the same politicians the same you know whether it's these uh, you know analysts from TV it, it's the same people running um, attorneys and we need a voice um, of the people. And that's what I pride myself on being, is a voice of the people. Uh, I've traveled quite a bit, like I said, in this last year and a half, meeting world leaders, having an incredible amount of support internationally as well as domestically. And I have a great, I've assembled a great team behind me. And so I'm really excited at the opportunity to, to be able to create a vision for U.S. soccer and to provide a vision that will create the change that we need. And I'm not a politician. I'm not gonna sit here and bullshit people. I'm not gonna sit here and, and you know, say what they wanna hear to get votes. I'm here to get things done. I'm here to create change that we all talk about, but we don't do anything about. And that's what I pride myself on being. I've proved this in my career. I've proved that I'm not afraid to go against the grain, that I'm not afraid to, to speak up and, and to stand up and to fight injustices and to fight uh, inequalities. Um, and that's why I know I'm the voice of the people. I call every state association and, and the people that I connect with the most are the people who are passionate and who care, not the politicians, not the Sunil Galatis of the world, not the necessarily the lifetime members who are given a lifetime member and a, and a, and a vote for all of the elections from here forward. I'm connecting with the people who care. I'm connecting with the, the youth. I'm connecting with the adults who feel neglected. Um, I'm connecting with the people who want real change. And that's important to me. Um, I'm, I hate using the word humble. Uh, I, think, <laughs> I think it's overused many times, but throughout this entire process, I've been humbled because I know that people believe in me and they believe in me because of the strength I've shown. And I do, I do know that adversity creates strength and creates leadership. And some of the best leaders in the world have overcome such adversity. So I'm proud of what I've been through. I think it's created me for this moment. Did I always know that I, I'd be going after a role like this? No, I didn't. Um, but I've been prepared for it, and I didn't know that I'd been preparing for it for for the last 20 years of my life. But here I, here I am, um, and I have the support. I have the endorsers that I needed because people believe in me, and that's what makes me proud. And and I hope that I make all of you proud as well as I continue um, running this campaign till I guess through February. Absolutely. So a little bit of on the field question. Uh, do you think, Todd from AO Tampa asked, do you think the US team should identify a, a specific playing style? If so, which style? Well, I think we need to create 
culture, soccer culture here in America. You know, when I've, when I've been traveling, I visited so many different European clubs. And it, it was incredible to me to see these young kids grow up in a system understanding the culture of whatever team that was. Let's take Man City, for example. They grow up knowing their style of play. They grow up, you know, understanding, being a part of, of, of the, uh, the meetings, understanding kind of the, the tactics and, and the coaching decisions and why the coach is making that decision. They're in classroom work together. They, they go to each other's games. Even the, even the top team goes to some of the U team games. It's this beautiful culture. And you're not seeing, you know, necessarily uh, two different club teams playing there. You're not necessarily seeing monster trucks come in or the X games like you do at, you know, at the StubHub Center. Um, it, it's legitimately a place to create culture for that specific team and that specific club. So I, I do think that we, as as America, we have to find our style of play that will work for us. I want it to be part of the modern game. I think every soccer purist wants to see more possession-oriented style of play going through the midfield with more creativity up top. I think all of us appreciate that. And I think we have the talent to do that. But I've seen so much fear. You know, I, I've been a part of coaches on the women's side, and I've seen it on the men's side as well, where we want that system. We want to play through our number 10, and we want runners off the ball going into into the, the opposing box, and we want to see numbers forward and creative play and, and one-two touch passing. We want to see that, and we train for it. But then when we get into the games, we fall back on historically what we've been, we've been coached and what we've been raised to do. And even now, the youth, when I go and watch the youth train and play, they have all these new rules. Like uh, it's called the, I think it's called the backdrop line. And it's the line where when the goalkeeper gets the ball, the opposing team has to, has to drop on the other side of the, the 18 or the other side of the backdrop line. And then it allows the goalkeeper to roll the ball out to two defenders that can drop into the box. And that's supposed to encourage playing out of the back, something that, Historically, U.S. the U.S. teams haven't been great at in, compared, in comparison to to European South football or South American South football. So we're encouraging it from a young age. But what's happening is now we're taking the kid that has the biggest the biggest leg, the strongest leg, is dropping back to get the ball with no pressure, and then he goes long. And we're, I'm still seeing this in the youth system, even though we're creating these mandates. We're still seeing one kid drop long and then serving it long to a fast forward. And that is because we have such an emphasis on winning here in the United States as opposed to development. And we talk about development, but when, when the, the whistle blows, we all want to win. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because I think oftentimes, um, you know, we've won some games when, when we played under Pia. Uh, we won some games that probably we shouldn't have won. We weren't necessarily the better skilled team, but we found a way to win. And that's a cultural thing here in America as well, is that we find a way to win, especially on the women's side. That's part of our culture. So I do think that we need we need a style that's personal to the United States. Um, I want it to be the modern style, but we cannot have coaches fall back or players fall back on the old, the old system and, and what's been in our DNA 
just win games. And that's what I keep seeing time and time and time again, which that also means that we have to be willing to lose some games as well. Again, we are here with Holt Solo. Um, we only have about 13 minutes left, so we're going to try to get as many of these questions in as we can. Um, we've got a question about the men team here. Patrick from AO Boca Raton. Hope, what specific failures by the Federation do you think contributed to the U.S. men's national team's failure to qualify for the World Cups? And what, what steps would you take to correct those problems from a fundamental side throughout U.S. soccer? Once again, I think this starts with the youth system, and our youth system is so broken right now. Um, we need to find those diamonds in the rough. We need to find the, the skilled players that aren't playing for the big clubs. We've created, in each, each state, we've created what I call super clubs. And what I mean by that is you're finding coaches and administrators recruiting kids at such a young age to all play for the best team in the state. So so that they can go on and win nationals, they can be ranked, they they can win state cup. But this isn't creating character. This is not creating battle-tested kids. And it's happening in every single state. I want to see kids play in their local teams. I want the state associations to take over. And I want to go back to the old system that worked, which it means which means no more recruiting, uh, no more recruiting these kids to the top two teams in the state. And, and essence creating these these teams that don't go through adversity they are playing with the best kin so you know they, they don't learn how to play with other style of players uh they don't necessarily have the best coaches who are developing them they just win games because they're so talented and they have all the best players on one team this is not overall helping the development of our youth players so i no longer want to see recruiting at such a young age I want kids to play in their local clubs, not driving two hours away. I want to make it more accessible so that we can find these, these players who are unable to drive an hour and a half away. Most kids right now are being called into national team camps from the top clubs and from the developmental academies. And we are missing so many talented players. It's, it's not a system that's working for us right now. And the old system did work. We just need to nourish it more. The, the, the old system of state cup, going to regionals, going to nationals, the old system of state ODP, regional ODP, national ODP, we could take that old system. That's where most of our players came from. That's where Eric Winalda came from. That's where, my, where I came from. That's where Carly Lloyd, Abby Wambach, that's where they came from, from the old system. And right now it's so convoluted and there's so many teams competing that the recruits now the national team scouts, not recruits, the national team scouts are really only scouting a select few teams from each state, and we're losing players. And I think that's a huge part. I mean, it was only inevitable that the men's team weren't going to qualify because we're losing so many talented players. And like I said, that starts at the youth system. But, you know, most important, I, I think when it comes to, to coaching the men's team, we need to, we need to find a coach who – coaches modern game um, and whose philosophy will drip into the youth system. Or we need a head coach that coaches, but also has a technical director who is in charge of the player development. I think long gone are the days where we just have a coach who coaches a national team, either the men or the women, and they don't care about the youth system. We, uh, we have to start building from, from the bottom to the top. And I, I, I do think it was a bit of arrogance within 
within the top of the federation, just assuming that we were going to qualify. And I hope that this was the low point that we all needed to fix the system. Again, we were with Hope Solo. Time is working against us. Unfortunately, we only have a, a time for a couple of questions left. Um, a couple of fan questions here. Hope um, Marcus from AO Portland asks, this year the newly formed fan council will give U.S. fans a small stake in U.S. soccer governance, including the presidential election. How familiar are you with the fan council? And what are your thoughts on the future role for the fan council within the United States Soccer Federation? I'm not afraid to say when I don't know, and right now is one of those moments where I'm not really educated on the fan council, but I would like to be educated. So um, I don't know if you have any time, Chris, to tell me a little bit about it. Um, yeah, so essentially what the voting makes up is, um, you know, there's there's a bunch of youth teams, um, directors, and then there's there's a couple fan councils that are, that are allowed to participate their votes. Um, I think there's two two fans that are they're able to cast their votes on behalf of all U.S. soccer fans, five on the council. Um, but I'm curious what you think on how how should fans be involved with U.S. soccer president or the U.S. soccer federation, and and, and should they have a voice more than what they do now? Absolutely, you know, I I, I tried to 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 say. Uh, What's important to me in my opening with you guys is that you guys use your voice already and you have so passion you're so passionate and you, you've continued to push the game forward. And I absolutely think that you should have a vote in the election process and in all things governing US soccer. I mean, you know the game, you know what's important to the fans and we would be nowhere without our fan base. And I know that U.S. soccer wants to make money. And in order to do so, we have to steal the stadiums. And we need you guys. And so absolutely, you should, you should have a bigger voice and you should have a vote and you should be a part of everything soccer here in America. And, you know, I have, uh, when we played in, uh, in Seattle, let's see, I'm trying to think when it was. It was after the World Cup in 2015. I had a great relationship with uh, the Sounders owners. Um, I was really excited to play in my hometown. It was the first time I'd ever be on the field in front of in front of my family and friends right there in Seattle. And I found out that none of the local clubs knew that the women's team were coming to town. I went on the radio, the local sports radio shows. The local sports radio shows did not know that the women's team, World Cup champions, were coming to town. And so I did a little bit of digging, and I found out Soccer United Marketing did nothing to market our game. So we got, I can't remember the numbers, but we we didn't even fill the lower bowl of CenturyLink. And I spoke to one of the owners for the founders, and he said, look, you guys could easily sell out this game. But I spoke to U.S. Soccer, and they will not open the top bowl for you guys because they want it to look like a sellout game. And if they only sell 20,000 tickets, then you guys will have a sellout game if you sell 18,000 tickets. So they already are handcuffing us by only opening the lower bowl when we could have had a sellout game post-World Cup victory of possibly 70,000 people. And, you know, it's, it's just a problem that we continue to see. Right, Hope. So we have about time for one more question before we give you uh, a minute to, to give a closing statement. 
Um, Carrie from AO New Haven asks, hope you were on the team before and after the rise of American Outlaws. What did you notice as a player about the game experience before and after the Outlaws came into existence in 2007? 2007, I was wondering. Um, yeah. I, I was thinking it was right around 2007. Um, I, I recall one of the first times I actually saw you guys behind one of the goals was with all of your scarves up, um, you know, I, I had just became a starting goalkeeper, I think, in 2005. But I really came onto the scene after my first major tournament, which is where people got to know me, which was in 2007. And so I just remember, I, I still felt, even though I was older in years, so to speak, I still felt like a new player. And I felt so, you know, just welcomed. I, I don't know how else to explain it other than you're alone in the goal. You, you really are. You're alone in the goal. Um, and when I went back there, I just felt the love. I felt the love. And you guys didn't know who I was. Um, you know, I was just a new young goalkeeper with blonde hair at the time. And I was nervous, and I was trying my best, and I had big shoes to fill. You know, I was coming after Brianna Scurry, a legend in, in goalkeeping, and I had big shoes to fill, and I was nervous. And there you guys were chanting, making it loud behind the goal. And honestly, I'm the type of player who, even if you're booing me, I just appreciate the love and the passion, and I appreciate the noise in the stadium, and that's what you guys provided for us, and specifically for me. Um, so I do want to take this moment to thank all of you for creating that environment. I felt loved. I also felt hated at times by you, but I love that as well. So thank you for, for bringing that environment to the game of soccer here in America, because that's what I witnessed every time I went overseas to play. That's what I witnessed when we went to Mexico to play. And that's always what I wanted for soccer here in America. And you guys finally brought that passion in the stadium that I had always, always desired. And, and, and it's, it's why I went overseas to play for so long. Um, it's why I love playing in Mexico. It's because I love that energy in the stadium, and I thrived off of that, off of that personally. Cheers. So we have um, about three minutes left, Hope, and we want to give you this opportunity just to kind of summarize um, what we talked about tonight and some of the other things. Um, if we didn't get a chance to touch on it tonight, um, the floor is yours. Um, well, I think I, I pretty much just ended with uh, my gratitude to all of you for what you've done for the game and what you've done for me personally. Um, I have many more stories where you guys carried us through World Cup victories and through Olympic championships. Um, I do want to tell you a short story just because I think it's important. I think you guys will enjoy it. It was in 2011, the quarterfinal match against Brazil, and I know a lot of you couldn't travel, but there were still quite a few of you in Germany. Um, if you recall that game, it was it was a brutal game. Um, we were down a goal in the in the closing minutes in the closing minutes of the game, and we were ranked number one in the world. And I really, 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 really thought at this point in time that this was our moment to win a World Cup in 2011. Everything just was set up. Um, that the stadiums were perfect, the fields were perfect. It was great competition. It was everything you could want in a tournament. And then in that quarterfinal match, things weren't going our way versus Brazil, and they were up a goal. They, uh, they took a PK. They were given a PK. It was, it was a dubious call. They were given a PK. We went down a man. Rachel Bueller went and got sent off the field. I saved the penalty kick, 
And then the ref, I'll never forget, I see her hand go up. We're celebrating that I saved the penalty kick. And I see the ref's hand go up, and she allowed Brazil to retake the penalty kick. And to this day, we're not really sure why, because I don't move off the line. It's not something I believe in. I never move forward. I, I don't think it, it helps the goalkeeper by any means. We find out later she called an encroachment on our captain, number three, Christy Rampone. And Martha stepped up this time. I made the save against Cristiani. Martha stepped up this time, and, and she she scored. And the minutes were winding down in the game, and I thought we were going home early. I thought that was it. And that's when you saw Abby make that remarkable header goal in stoppage time to tie the game. And we ended up winning in penalty kicks. But in that game, we we were being booed. Every single time we got the ball, we were being booed by the entire stadium. We we weren't liked by anybody because we were the favorites. We had a target on our backs. And then there was something that happened. Brazil were, Brazil was dancing on the ball. They were wasting time. They were doing all the typical Brazilian tactics. And all of a sudden, we, we just felt the shift of the fans change in the stadium. Everyone just, just started booing Brazil. And we heard our American outlaw crowd. We heard our fans get louder and louder and louder, and they continued to inspire the rest of the stadium. And it was because of you guys that all of a sudden we were the away team in that stadium in Germany playing against Brazil, and we became the home team. And I truly, to this day, I believe that's what inspired us, and that's what inspired Abby to get that goal. We felt you guys, and it was one of our greatest soccer memories to date. Even though we didn't go on to win the 2011 World Cup, you guys really did carry us, and it was one of my greatest soccer memories that I'll ever have. So I, I want to thank you. Um, thank you all for this time. And, Chris, if you guys have any further questions, I want to open up my email to you. Um, I, I do believe you have it. Um, but I would love to continue dialogue because you guys truly are the voice of the game, and my time is your time. So don't be afraid to reach out. Uh, any of your fans that have any more questions, um, my door is always open for you guys. So. Thank you for making my career a beautiful career, and I hope that we can work together in the near future. What a game that Brazil game was. Um, the Megan Rapino ball, Abby Wambach in the uh, in stoppage time. What a game. Um, yeah. Thanks again, Hope. We really appreciate you taking the time out um, to, to speak with us and our members tonight. It, it means a lot to us, and uh, we, uh, we wish you the best of luck on your presidential campaign, and uh, we will be in touch. Sounds great. Thank you all. Have a good all right, night. Take care. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes our U.S. soccer candidate um, discussion with Hope Solo. Um, tune in for the next one, which I believe is next week uh, with Steve Gans. Um, and we will talk to you guys soon. Have a great night.